be in Matthew 21 and then Matthew 27 this morning as we are in our second to last sermon on the series of why would you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Do you really understand the cost of following him? And we've been looking at Matthew's gospel and considering that and we will be looking this morning again at Matthew's gospel as we wrestle with that question, do I really know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Not just someone who talks about being a disciple but actually lives that out of my life. Now, uh, you have to know that right now, is a, it's a great time of year uh, to be a disciple of Jesus. It's the time of year that getting close to Easter, and, and every news magazine you're going to pick up in the next week is going to have some article uh, about Christianity on it. It might not be necessarily in a positive spin, uh, but this is our time of year to shine. It's a time when everybody kind of focuses their attention. Uh, after all, if there wasn't an Easter, there wouldn't be Easter egg hunts, and my children are eternally grateful for Easter egg hunts and the opportunities uh, to find little treasures. We started a few years ago putting little dollar bills in our Easter eggs, a couple of the extra ones, and, and I think now because we have kids in college, we're up to $20 bills and, you know, tuition reimbursement, you know, in one of the, one of the Easter eggs. Everybody gets a, a new outfit this time of year. Everybody's got a little bit of a, of a new tan. I always get a new shirt uh, before Easter Sunday. Uh, there's all kinds of things that people celebrate on Easter, and, and you don't even really have to be a disciple of Jesus to think good thoughts about Easter. Maybe it's the time of year where you, you circle back to church once or, or twice during the year, and this is one of those times right before brunch or right after brunch, uh, and disciples of Jesus are, are a little bit more popular this time of year, perhaps, than, than other times of year. So maybe it's a, it's a good choice you've made if you're here that's popular this time of year, perhaps, than than other times of year. So maybe it's a, it's a good choice you've made if you're here this morning uh, and you're a disciple of Jesus. Maybe your, your timing is impeccable. One of the two questions that I want to wrestle with and ask this morning is this. How do disciples of Jesus react when everything is, is going well, uh, when everybody's cheering? What does it look like to be a disciple in those particular moments? Uh, and we're going to look at the Matthew passage. It's a very familiar passage. We have, obviously, the palm trees. I really wanted to stand behind these palm trees and kind of preach like the burning bush this morning, but they wouldn't let me do it. Uh, but it's Palm Sunday, and, and that's a, a day when people celebrated the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It was certainly a day where being a disciple of Jesus was absolutely the end thing. And so the first question we're going to look at this morning is that how do disciples react when everyone is cheering, and then I'll introduce the second question in a few moments. Uh, but as we begin with that, we'll look at your Bibles or follow along on the screen. Uh, Matthew 21, verses 6 through 11. Hear the word of God. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the, in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for, uh, for your word. Thank you that it is true, that it permeates our lives, that it speaks to us directly where we are today. Father, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would come and would open our hearts and our minds to what you want to say to us. 
Lord, some of us have been on break this last week, and we're feeling rested, and it's been a wonderful week of great weather and great time with family and with friends. And we come to church this morning filled with joy. It's a beautiful spring morning, and the flowers are beginning to bloom, and the trees are budding. We sense your presence in a very real way. Father, others of us are, are struggling in our walk with you. We are overwhelmed with the circumstances of our lives, situations that seem to be uh, no solution, no answers. Father, maybe many of us are somewhere in between those two places. Wherever we are this morning, Father, we pray that, that you would come and would teach us. Lord, don't let my inability to uh, explain this clearly stand in the way of what you want to do in our hearts and our minds this morning. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come and that you would be our teacher, that every heart in this room, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, whether we call ourselves a disciple of you, whether we call ourselves, call ourselves a disciple of you, truth would speak directly in each one of our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, how would the disciples react on, on what has now become known Palm Sunday as Jesus uh, enters Jerusalem? We see in this uh, passage in Matthew chapter 21, uh, that, Jesus, uh, that the, that the uh, author of the passage, Matthew, talks about the crowd and its reaction to Jesus. And I want to look at that reaction for just a couple minutes and then draw a couple of conclusions from that before we go on to our second text. Uh, because this is obviously a day of triumph. This is a day of joy. This is a, a day that perhaps has been long anticipated by the disciples of Jesus. And now they're finally seeing what they believe to be uh, the ministry of Jesus come into its fullest measure. Uh, and so I want to look at a few verses in, in this particular passage and point out a couple things. First in verse 8, verse 8, it said, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The, the spreading of the cloaks and the, and the palm branches on the road, uh, there's a, a carpet that's being laid for the king, so to speak. Uh, these things were spread on the road because the king was coming to town, and, and even the animal upon which the king was riding uh, shouldn't get its hooves dirty in the common dirt that touches others. There's a, there's a sense of, of worship, there's a sense of praise, there's a sense of Jesus is someone uh, more significant in the nation of Israel than anybody we've seen probably since the days of the prophets maybe even since the great King David himself. And as Jesus is nearing Jerusalem, the word spreads like wildfire and people come out of the surrounding villages and people come out of the city of Jerusalem to greet this one. And they lay their cloaks on the road, spreading a carpet for a king. Their voices match uh, what's going on in their hearts and their, their action of cutting the palm branches. In verse 9, it says, And the crowds that went before him... And the crowds that, that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The shouting of Hosanna. The praise of God for the son of David. Now you need to understand to, to you and to me, uh, the son of David may not be all that significant. It may not be all that important other than we know that, that somewhere along the line God promised David that, that his descendants were going to uh, rule and to reign. Uh, but to the Jewish person of Jesus' day, to call someone the son of David was reserved only for the Messiah. This one who is the son of David is the one who brings the promise of ushering in God's kingdom in its fullest measure. This is the hero of all heroes. 
This is, this is the one who is going to redeem his people for all time. And so as these people shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, they were declaring the Messiahship of Jesus. They were declaring that all the, the promises that the Old Testament had made that pointed towards the coming king were now going to find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. In verse 11, uh, it says, when they, when they entered Jerusalem, some of the folks were stirred up saying, who is this? And the answer they got from the crowd was, this is the prophet, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And my, my point here is simply that the prophet is the one who says, when they, when they entered Jerusalem, some of the folks, he is the Messiah. In verse 11, uh, it says, when they, when they entered Jerusalem, some of the folks were stirred up saying, who is this? And the answer they got from the crowd was, this is the prophet, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And my, my point here is simply that the prophet is the one who speaks directly for God. There had been no prophet in Israel for over 400 years. The prophetic word had been silenced. The Holy Spirit had said all that he was going to say. And for 400 years, up until the time of Jesus' coming, there had not been a prophet who would speak God's truth. And so caught up in the moment, caught up in the exuberance of what is happening, people from all different walks of life, including Jesus' disciples, are caught up in a celebration, in a hero's welcome. This, this was the ticker tape parade of Jesus' day and age. You think about uh, those heroes who go through uh, downtown Manhattan and receive a, a ticker tape parade, a hero's welcome. This is heady stuff. And the disciples had no problem following Jesus. Not only were they willing to stand by him, not only were they willing to be identified with him, but they were, in fact, eager to be identified with him. Jesus gave them directions on what to do in order to prepare for his triumphal entry, and they followed that with, with great excitement, with great anticipation. In fact, they were not only willing to stand by him, but they wanted to stand as close as possible to him because everybody likes to be able to say they know a celebrity. When things are going well, when there, when there is uh, a sense of joy, when there's a sense of triumph, when there's a sense of victory, everybody wants to be known as one of those disciples. The disciples were, were right in the middle of the mix. They were right there going along with the crowd, shouting and celebrating and being joyful. Uh, we uh, had a little tiny itty-bitty taste of this the last week I did, uh, and then I got an email a week ago Sunday, and, uh, and, and a lot of you were gone, and I haven't shared this with anybody beyond our staff and our elders, but uh, in our denomination, and some of you don't even know we're in a denomination, and that's not necessarily a bad thing that you don't know that, but um, there, there are hundreds of churches in our denomination, and every year they give uh, an award, and the award's only been given for two years. This is the third year they give it to the church that shows the, the most kind of vim and vigor in getting after their mission and their, uh, their goals and, uh, and their core values. And uh, this, this award is called the Bart Hess year. They give it to the church that founding fathers, and he was a man of, of great vision. He was a church planter, and he was a, a statesman in the, in the uh, denomination. And so this is, a, this is the highest award our denomination can give. And I just got an email last week that said, Green Tree has received this award. And I, and I read the email, and then I reread the email, and I thought it must really be a bad year. You know, I'm not sure what, you know, it's kind of like the guy who wins the Academy Award when there weren't any other good actors. And that's not a comment about our congregation. Please trust me in that. Uh, it's kind of a self-reflection. But um, my phone started ringing, and all of a sudden people were, 
were patting me on the back. And, and guys that I haven't talked to in quite a while are calling me saying, hey, isn't that great? Why? Because people kind of like to be around when you win. People like to be around when things are going well, don't they? We like to be included in, in, the, in the victory celebration. That's human nature. And Jesus' disciples had absolutely no problem being part of the team on that particular day. But that's only the first question that we want to ask, try to answer this morning in this section of Matthew. First question is, how do disciples react when everybody's cheering? The second question is simply this, how do disciples react when everyone turns against them? How do disciples react when everybody turns against them? If you have your Bible still open, you can flip over to Matthew chapter 27. Again, you can follow along in the screen. Uh, we're going to move up in the account of Jesus' life three, maybe at the most four days. Uh, this is either on Wednesday or Thursday of what we call Holy Week. So Jesus is coming to Jerusalem uh, on Sunday. Uh, and the events that we're now reading about probably took place uh, on early Thursday morning of that week. So literally uh, no more than four days hence this great victory celebration. Verse 15, chapter 27, reading through verse 26. Again, hear the word of God. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then the notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, that being the crowd had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water. And he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves and all the people answered his blood be on us and on our children then they released for them barabbas and having scourged jesus delivered him to be crucified the cheering has been silenced it's no longer a triumphal entry but just a mere three or four days later the one who was called the son of david the one who is being praised for coming in the name of the lord now faces a death sentence. Many of the people who stood on the roadway that morning that Jesus came into Jerusalem are now standing in front of Pilate's court with a very different message on their lips and a very different attitude in their hearts. How do disciples react when everyone turns against them? Well, in verse 17, it says, So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas? or Jesus who is called the Christ. Just as word had spread like wildfire as Jesus came into Jerusalem, so word spread that probably Thursday morning. 
The rabbi Jesus has been arrested by the chief priests and the elders. He's going to appear before Pilate this morning. Come on, we need to go and see what's going to happen. These curious onlookers can't drive by an accident without pausing and looking at the grotesque problems that they might find on the side of the road. So this crowd has gathered to see what will happen. But this crowd does not remain neutral for long. Look at find on the side of the road. So this crowd and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. This crowd of onlookers is easily turned. They're persuaded. Maybe even perhaps they're pressured by the, high, by the chief priests and the elders. Maybe the, the chief priests and the elders had gone through and, and filtered through the crowd and said, if you don't stand against Jesus, you won't be allowed into temple worship. We're here taking names. We're watching very carefully. And you need to make sure when it comes down to a vote that you vote the right way. It could be very well that perhaps they were going through and pressuring and persuading. It might have been that their very presence, you know, if one of the great teachers of the law was standing by you when Pilate asked who should be released, and you knew exactly what he thought, and you knew that he knew your name and your family, there would have been a lot of pressure on you just simply by his presence to make sure that you said and did the right thing. This crowd was easily turned against Christ. But notice that the cheering is not only silenced, but it's turned to shouts of condemnation. Verses 21 through 23, the governor said again to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. He said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified crucified. No more cheering. No more triumph. The silence has turned to shouts of condemnation and reproach. Crucifixion was a penalty that was imposed upon the harshest and the worst of criminals. Crucifixion was not uh, just handed out to anybody who committed any small crime, but to be crucified was literally to be the outcast of the outcasts of society, the very worst of the very worst. And this one who just a few days ago was the hoped-for son of David is now the accursed one. And the cheering crowd is now the jeering crowd, demanding blood. But it gets even worse than that. This crowd is so stirred up against Jesus that this diatribe of, of crucify him, these shouts of condemnation, literally turn into a crusade in their minds against evil. Look at verses 24 and 25, just 25 actually. Uh, Pilate says, I'm innocent of the blood. See to, to it yourselves. See to his, to his death yourselves. In other words, it's your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. They were so convinced by now they were so stirred up to the point where this is almost becoming a riot. The emotion against Jesus has become infectious to the point where they're saying, look, if we got it wrong, then let his blood be on us. If we're killing an innocent man, then let his blood be on us and on our children. And ignorantly, they were speaking a prophetic word because it is only the blood of Jesus that will ultimately cover us and offer grace and mercy. But in this particular moment, the crowd is stirred into a frenzy. Us and on our children that will ultimately cover us and offer grace and mercy. But in this particular moment, the crowd is stirred into a frenzy and they won't rest until Jesus has been nailed to a cross. 
And so the question this morning is, where are the disciples? Where have they gone? These ones who three short days ago have shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord. How is it that Jesus' friends in this short time have now become his enemies? Nobody stood up for Jesus in that particular moment. The best friend Jesus had in this crowd was a third-rate Roman politician who by his own corruption had, had found himself exiled to a backwater city like Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate was no great political figure. He was, he was a politician that nobody wanted to be around. It's like Richard Nixon at the end of his term when he's, he's been uh, exiled and he has he is, uh, resigned the presidency. Nobody wanted to have anything to do at that moment with Richard Nixon. He was anathema. You just didn't want to be associated with him. Pilate was that kind of guy. He couldn't even go into his, own town, his hometown of Rome. Caesar had put him in charge of Jerusalem because he was looking for some place where he could put him off to the side where he, he couldn't cause any trouble. I was thinking about what that would be in our modern day, and I, I guess it would be like being a being assigned to be the ambassador to someplace like Fiji. You know, I guess it's a, it's a good gig if you can get it, but, but what really are you going to accomplish? You know, if, if you're that ambassador, you're not a person of really any political influence. And this is the guy that Jesus has standing next to him. This is his only friend in the whole crowd, to the point where Pilate says, I'm going to at least try and release Barabbas to the crowd, and I'll at least try one last time. Well, what evil has he done? Pilate at least had the, had the common sense to understand the envy that was surrounding this. But there's no one else standing for Jesus. The disciples are nowhere to be found. And worse than that, some who claimed earlier in the week to be his followers have now turned against him to the point where they're calling for his death. Some who stood in that crowd on Thursday morning were the same folks who Sunday morning, just a few days earlier, had said, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now they're shouting, crucify him, and Jesus is all alone. I want to suggest to you this morning that not a whole lot has changed in the past 2,000 years. It's easy to stand by Jesus. It's easy to be his disciples when you're surrounded by other Christians in church, uh, when you're worshiping God. Uh, coming to uh, North Kirkwood Middle School on Sunday morning, uh, to prove my discipleship is really not that big of a deal. It's not that far of a stretch. Uh, people here tend to be nice. They tend to be kind and polite. They tend to, they tend to welcome me on Sunday mornings and, and tell me they're glad to see me. They kind of expect me to be a disciple of Jesus. And to be here is really not time to be a disciple of Jesus and walk in and out, walk out this door. Will I still stand with him? Will I really be a disciple of Jesus on, on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and throughout the week when there are others around me that don't love him, that have no use for him, and actually think I'm quite foolish for following him? Will I stand by Jesus when my friends maybe perhaps turn to be my enemies, at least when it comes to my faith, when they exhibit an animosity towards me, when they, when they think I'm foolish and simple-minded for being a disciple of Jesus? Will I still stand for my Lord? Jesus promises that disciples are going to have conflict in their lives. Very briefly, I want you to look at John 15, just three verses. Jesus is talking. This is actually uh, the night before this event uh, where they're calling out for his crucifixion. 
Jesus is talking to his remaining 11 disciples. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that the world, in, the, in the word that I said to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Friends, if you are going to be a disciple of Jesus, you need to understand that that's going to mean conflict in your life. might mean conflict with a, with a spouse who is unbelieving. might be conflict with other family members who, who think you're a fool for following Jesus and they think you've become too zealous and you're taking this religious stuff way too seriously could be in the workplace where people kind of talk behind your back a little bit and chuckle that you would be so simple-minded as to take seriously the claims of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Wherever you find yourself, you're going to face conflict. Will I still stand with Jesus? It may just be a, a, a word of, of uh, mocking. Uh, in our day and age, in our culture, in the United States, we aren't necessarily exposed to physical violence. But nonetheless, we will face conflict and how will we react when that particular moment comes when it's safer just to keep your head down and your mouth shut not to negatively speak not to not to you know disclaim knowing Christ but you know what I'll just I'm just going to be quiet that's the sensible thing to do what will our attitude be when that moment comes when we're called to stand for Jesus Christ I want to show you one other passage of scripture this morning and draw some conclusions in Hebrews Chapter 13, the author of Hebrews is summing up his conversation with the folks with whom he's writing and speaking, and he's calling them to discipleship. He's calling them to follow Christ. And he says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Will we go out to him who suffered for us? Purposely identifying ourselves as disciples of Jesus in a hostile world? Notice, first of all, why Jesus suffered outside the city. What does the author of Hebrews say? He suffered outside the gate, which is a way of saying he was scorned. He was, he was the worst of the worst. He was accursed. Why? In order to sanctify the people through his own blood. You can put your name in that sentence. In order to sanctify Tom Ricks. Through his blood, that's why Jesus suffered. He had that purpose in mind because he wanted to redeem my soul and he wanted to redeem your soul and he knew only through the shedding of innocent blood, only by experiencing God's wrath could my salvation be purchased, could your salvation be purchased. And now he looks at us and he says, will you stand next to me? The world does not need a church today that conforms to the world. It desperately needs people who are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ no matter what. Notice that the author of Hebrews doesn't say, let's be ready to go out and stand next to him if we need to. He puts it in the proactive sense of the word. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. The author of Hebrews isn't saying, now go look for a fight. Go pick a fight with somebody. Walk around and be obnoxious about your faith until somebody takes you to task over it, and then you can be really righteous and holier than thou. That's not his point. But he's simply saying, be ready in your mind, be prepared in your heart and your spirit in order when that moment comes, if that moment comes, that you're ready to bear the reproach that Jesus bore because he is the one 
to whom you've committed yourself because he is the one who has been gracious to you. He's the one who's been merciful to you. The world needs to see people conform to the image of Jesus Christ who will bear his reproach. They may hate us for it. They may hate us for it. They may hate us for it. But nonetheless, they need to see it. I often uh, have spoken about one of my heroes in the faith who's a guy named Polycarp, and that he has a, that's a really weird name, I know, but he lived in the third century, and people had strange names back then. But he was a bishop uh, in the city of Smyrna, and Smyrna, uh, where he was bishop, was actually the Smyrna in Revelation, one of the seven churches to which John writes. And about 150 years after John wrote to the church of Smyrna, Polycarp lived, and he was a gentle and kind and compassionate person, as you could find. He was what a, a pastor really ought to be. He cared for the poor like nobody else in that town. He would go around to the rich and, and, he, would, and he would show them the poor and the broken and he would say, you've got, to, you've got to be merciful to these people. And he really took his discipleship with Jesus seriously and really cared for anyone and everyone who came uh, under his influence. But during his lifetime, persecution broke out against the church and, and uh, Polycarp, not unlike Jesus, finds himself standing before the governor of his town. Uh, the pilot, so to speak, of his day and age. And this uh, governor is trying to convince Polycarp, look, all you've got to do is just, just say that, that you agree that Caesar's God. So you don't have to really live it out. You can go back to your Christianity, but just right now for this particular moment, because this mob wants to kill you, could you just kind of go along and get along and everything will be okay? And I'm going to read you just a couple of excerpts out of this text. And the, and the term used in, in, in the reading here is proconsul. The proconsul is just another word for governor. Then the proconsul urging him, saying, Swear and I will set you at liberty. Simply reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And when the proconsul yet again pressed him and said, Swear by fortune of Caesar, he answered, Since thou art vainly urgent that as thou sayest, I should swear by fortune of Caesar, and pretendest not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. Then the proconsul said to him, I have wild beasts at hand. I will cast them into thee, except thou repent. And Polycarp answered, Call them then. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt what is evil. And the dialogue goes back and forth. And then the proconsul again says to him, I will cause thee to be consumed by fire. Polycarp says, Thou threatenest me with fire which burneth for an hour, and then after a little is extinguished. But thou art ignorant of the fire, the, the coming judgment of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou? Bring forth what thou wilt. So they bring out the fire, they bring out the wood. They're going to literally nail him to a cross uh, in the middle of the, the, the pyre. But when they were about to fix him with nails, he said, leave me as I am, for he that giveth me strength to endure the fire will also enable me without your securing me by nails to remain without moving in the pile. The world doesn't need people who conform to its image. It needs people who will stand and be disciples of Jesus. Crowds can easily be swayed, friends. Folks that, that claim to be neutral, 
or kind towards the Christian faith today can tomorrow determine that it needs to be stamped out. Someone who is polite to you about your faith, perhaps the next moment offers sarcasm and ridicule about that which you believe. Where will we be? Will we stand with Jesus? Will we, will we go outside the gate and bear the reproach of his name? Because that may very well be to what he calls us. But will we stand for him regardless of others' opinion? Our city needs the gospel. That's why we're committed to planting churches. Will we stand for his name? Will we go out to him and start new congregations and sacrifice whatever is called for to sacrifice in order that people may hear the claims of Christ, even if people think we're foolish for doing so? Will we care for the widow and the orphan? The church is really the only place where people are compassionate and gracious across the board again and again and again. Even when the world sets them aside and says, we don't need to worry about them. Will we care for them? Will we love them? Will we serve them? Because we're disciples of Jesus. Will we live our lives in a way that says we are consumed by his cause? We care nothing for our own lives except that they are attached to Jesus. Sometimes that's pretty easy. There are times when the crowd cheers. There are times when everybody pats you on the back and says, aren't those Christians wonderful folks? But there are other moments, moments of conflict, moments of struggle. Jesus faced it himself in going to the cross to purchase your salvation and to purchase mine. And he calls us to follow him. He calls us to stand up and to be counted. The world needs Christians who will do just that. Not Christians who will be disciples when it suits them, but simply Christians who will be disciples. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, this morning as we enter into what we call Holy Week, we celebrate the, the Sunday that we've come to know as Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. But Jesus, the triumph turned to tragedy almost overnight the shouts of joy turned to shouts of hatred and when it came right down to it the people didn't want you as king they only wanted to serve their own devices Lord Jesus may we not be guilty of a casual discipleship Help us to understand that you call us to come outside the city gate with you. To be those who people sometimes look at and go, what a bunch of fools. How could they be so taken in? How could they be so simple as to believe that a Jewish carpenter from some obscure village 2,000 years ago could actually be the son of God? But Lord Jesus, help us not live for anything that man might say. Help us to be disciples 